0: We're talking about it.
1: This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Hamilton Today here on 900CHML. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today. Welcome to the show. Glad you're along here on 900CHML on this chilly Tuesday when we are possibly expecting our first real dose of snow. Possibly. They keep changing on us. The way you know it's not going to snow is if they tell us we're having a massive blizzard. Then you know you're safe because then we're not going to get any snow. If they say, "Oh, it's not going to snow today," probably get the snow tires on, buy some extra groceries and be ready to hunker down because we may be buried. Not not, you know, not taking shots at our weather people, friends. Snow just seems to be the thing that creates some problems. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times in the last number of years we've heard, "Oh, Buy extra supplies. Storms are coming. And we wake up and the schools are canceled for that one third of a centimeter of fluffy snow that has fallen to the ground. Anyway, we'll see. By the time we're done talking today, it could be coming down in bushelfuls or not. We'll let you know. We will con- we will continue to bring you weather updates, and I will run Will, who's behind the board here, I will run Will to the windows on a regular basis to check for frozen precipitation. You will be kept updated, I promise. Welcome to the show. As I say, we have got so many things to get to today on a jam, jam, jam-packed show. We're going to be chatting about the, well, NASA's latest attempt to get its rocket off the ground. I mean, this is this is... To me, it's kind of a stunning thing. It always has been that in 1969, we could send a rocket to the moon using rudimentary computers and other technology that was from 1969 and we could do it. And now we can't get a rocket off the ground. Shouldn't this be a whole lot easier by now? We'll we'll try and touch on that. Uh, we're going to be chatting about the G20 and Canada's role. canadas I mean, there's a lot of things going on. Does Canada really have the power to flex any kind of muscle or do we go there just as the, you know, the person in the back of the school play who plays a rock just for appearance and and aesthetic? I mean, when we show up, when Canada shows up, does everybody go, oh, Canada's here. Do they say, oh, good. We've got a few more people for the group picture. Fill it out a little bit. We'll we'll talk about Canada's role there. We're going to get into EQAO scores some really interesting stuff that not everybody is happy with, with EQAO, uh, those the standardized testing scores across the province. Um, I don't know how much you think about lettuce, lettuce, or other green garnishes. The things that you, when you go to a restaurant they put something green on the side. Traditionally, well, I do. Anyway, you leave it. You order a shrimp cocktail, what do you eat? The shrimp. Do you eat the green stuff? No, that's just a bed. It's a it's a, it's a de- decoration. Lettuce is the unappreciated food. Well, it's now being cut out of a lot of restaurants because guess why? That's right. Costs are up like for everything else. Do we care that we are out of lettuce or at least not out of it, but that we're being denied our lettuce. Hmm, not sure about that one. And we will be talking to both Hupeg, the group that is tasked with renovating First Ontario Centre, and the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs today. They are, they have had a public difference of opinion on what is going on and what should be going on with that arena. We will be chatting about official bilingualism that is being entrenched in more and more places for more and more government jobs. Is this really a fair position for our government to be taking, to lock in more and more jobs that require you to be bilingual? In Quebec, I would say, sure. Maybe in some parts of the Maritimes, absolutely. Part of Ontario, closer to the Quebec border, absolutely. But when you get into Saskatchewan and Alberta and BC, should you have to be able to be bilingual to apply for certain jobs? Or is this really just reducing the number of people to those from certain parts of the country. We'll we'll talk about that later in the show. Uh, the flu, we're going to be talking about masks again and kids with masks. This is just an ongoing story. I'll tell you about our poll, our Twitter poll in just a second here. And uh, back to China near the end of the show. Our Twitter poll today, numbers. We, we've had some big Twitter poll numbers over the years. Every day here on the sh- in the morning, Rick starts at, at uh, Good Morning Hamilton, Rick Zamprin. And there's a Twitter poll every morning. And we've had big numbers before. Nothing like today. I don't know what happened. I don't know if the Russian bots were alerted or if this is just the issue, more likely, that people really have strong feelings on, really have strong feel. I mean, unbelievably strong feelings on. Question today on the Twitter poll, and want you to go cast your vote. Are you okay with Ontario not imposing a mask mandate? Are you okay with Ontario not imposing a mask mandate? Yes, you don't mind if they don't, or no, they really should. Already, there have been over 11,000 votes cast in this one today. This is a record by a mile. This is what people truly, really, absolutely, clearly have strong feelings about. I won't tell you where the numbers are yet. I'll let you cast your votes, but closer to the end of the show, I'll tell you where the vote is leaning. Let me tell you though, it is four out of five, 80% is leaning in one direction or the other. I'll let you decide which one that is. Four out of five I have one, are sharing an opinion. Are you okay with Ontario not imposing a mask mandate? Yes or no? Go to Twitter, go to 900CHML, cast your vote there. One more thing before we go to the news update or the news alert. I just want to e- 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 ease in here. Uh, the, the numbers you're referring to in the Twitter poll question you're referring to, Scott, this is Will Weber behind the board. Uh, that was for yesterday's that was yesterday. Twitter poll question. Today's is the Ontario Liberals are calling for universal masking in schools and on transit, do you support that idea? And there are four uh, answers. Yes, but only for transit. Yes, but only for schools. Yes to both or no to both. Well, thanks for the correction. So I can tell you then what happened with yesterday's Twitter poll. See, I, I, I had the wrong little piece of information there. It happens. Uh, yesterday, are you okay with Ontario not imposing a mask mandate? are okay with no mask mandate. Only 19.4, 20% basically say they want a mask mandate. Huh. I did not think that would be the number, especially with the polls that we've been seeing, saying it's closer to more than 50 wanting it. Anyway, if you're a fan of things like rockets and space flight, and I guess it's not science fiction, but you know, the whole above the earth, out in the universe kind of thing, you will be very excited again at uh, what might we hope be happening? Uh, there's a lot of caveats that I'm putting on this, but uh, NASA is trying again tomorrow morning at 1:04 a.m. our time, assuming everything goes right. And uh, at this point, probably that's a when you got to be a little careful with because so far that assumption has not been <laughs> too helpful. But assuming everything goes right, NASA's Artemis Moon rocket is going to blast off unmanned, unpersoned, I guess, is the more proper term these days because the idea is down the road we will have a woman on board to go to the moon. But this will be going off unmanned and we'll do a whole bunch of tests and you know, kind of do what happened way back in the day with the Apollo uh, missions and Mercury before that to, to make sure that everything is working before we blast people off to go to the moon. I want to bring in Orbachs? He is a lecturer in the Department of Physics in the College of Engineering and Physical Sciences at the University of Guelph. He is co-founder of Royal City Science, and he is half of the Orbachs and Pepper Do Science platform, science-based platform. He joins us now, Orbachs. Thanks for the time today. I really appreciate this. No problem. I'm happy to be here. All right, help me out with this biggest question that I've got about this whole thing. I cannot figure this out. 1969, with the most rudimentary technology, we were able to get rockets, not easily, but obviously with reasonable success up to the moon. Shouldn't all these years later, 53 years later, shouldn't this be way, way, way simpler than all the problems we're having?
2: Well, I mean, fundamentally, we we did get to the moon, but we did lose a lot of rockets along the way as well. True, true. (laughs) The the, the systems that we have now, you've got to realize we haven't been to the moon since 1972. Uh, So it's been 50 years since we've attempted this. And not only that, the Orion spacecraft, which is attached to the SLS uh, rocket, which will be going in this flyby as part of the Artemis project, is actually – the biggest craft of its kind made to hold astronauts in deep space, the furthest that we've ever tried to send a a ship that could hold astronauts out beyond the moon. So it's creating all of its own system of difficulties as we go along the way. Also, we're a lot safer these days than we were back then as well. And so all the continuous checks that are being done in these systems in order to make sure that we have a safe system.
1: So... All right, so we are doing more to make sure that astronauts don't die than once upon a time we were?
2: Well, I mean, it's just uh, in the evolution of of all this, we've learned so much in the last 50 years that we want to make sure that when we send this massive equipment and its payload of incredible people up there, that everything is safe and taken care of and we're going to get them back safely.
1: Would this have been a different story if we had been constantly doing this over the last 50 years? Do you believe that if that had happened, this would be a much easier process?
2: Oh, 100 percent. I mean, the amount of, of, of leaps forward in technology that have happened even in the last 10 years compared to the last 50 is, is phenomenal. I mean, even the last five years with the, the explosion of smartphones and whatnot and the ability to have computational power at your fingertips uh, without the great big giant computers that we had back in the day. And it's kind of ridiculous that we haven't been going back to the moon during this whole period of time
1: let me be negative for just one second and then we'll go back to optimism. What happens to the program if something bad were to happen? Now, again, this is unmanned. So nobody presumably would die, but what happens if this rocket fails or falls over or blows up or something? Does the program die or is it just delayed or what would happen?
2: Well, you know, it's hard to say. Um, I'm not necessarily a position to, 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 you know, make any hard or firm decisions in that way. I'm just a physics lecturer as it were. But uh, you know, my thought would be that it would definitely cause people to reevaluate, Going. That's what I wonder. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, for programs like this to exist and for, you know, these things to move forward, I think a huge part of it is getting the population on board and getting people rooting for it and understanding the value that can be seen in doing these types of missions. And, you know, you can only <laughs> delay things or lose things so many times until you lose the uh, the love of the people.
1: Because there was, a, and again, this is almost before my time. I was very, very, very young. I am, won't ask you how old you are. I don't know if you were around when the Apollo missions were going off, but as you say, they lost rockets. And there were people back then from my reading of history that were essentially arguing, we can't do this. We shouldn't do this. It's too risky to do this. We got to stop it.
2: Well, I'm only 45. So, you know, uh, in terms of, of my lifetime, we've never been on the moon in my lifetime. Um, but we have been sending things out to the deepest, darkest parts of space since the James Webb Space Telescope out a million miles behind the Earth. Um, it It's exciting to me that we're going to go to our closest satellite and potentially do all this type of science there. But that that is the thing, you know, it it becomes a big question of public opinion as to what people think. Right. you, You know where we should go, and where we should spend our time.
1: What do you believe that? I mean, again, the moon has not been what it was for kids in the sixties or even adults in the sixties. Right, yeah, it's sure. a different thing now, but if we were to get back and land on the moon now with 4k or 5k TVs and we can see it up close, do you believe that that excitement could be rekindled?
2: Oh, I think a hundred percent. I mean, I think you've seen it over the course of this entire summer with the, honestly, the biggest thing in, in, in space excitement has been these images coming from the James Webb space telescope as they sort of rolled out over the course of the summer. And I mean, I even have, you you, you know, my mom sends me these pictures and, and she's excited. Like if for some, somehow, and you mentioned it earlier when you did your intro, this idea of it being science fiction, but it's science fact now, you know, when, when you and I grew up, we were always, Uh, showing these fantastic images of, of moon bases of space colonies and 50 years later, we don't have those yet. And this is our first step towards getting there.
1: What would be the thing? See, I've got, I've got something that I think would be the thing that would get people to tune in even in bigger amounts than normal. And that would be if somehow you could get a shot, a today shot of where Apollo 11 landed. If you could get up.
2: Oh, wow, yeah, that would be
1: amazing. That would be so cool. I but I don't know if that's reasonable. I mean the moon is a big place, even though it's smaller than Earth. What what do you think would be the thing that would grab people's attention like nothing else it, if and you when know, they land?
2: It's so hard to say because when you go and look at NASA's uh, promotional material for these missions and any others they have a phenomenal ability to do these uh, uh, computer animations for it. Right. And so you see these, these animations in your, and you have a generation of people who have who've only seen animations of what it's like in space or what it's like on the moon. But for this Orbital device that's, that we're heading and setting up now, the Orion spacecraft, when it continues this launch, when it goes around the dark side of the moon and comes out the other side of it, that'll be the first time in 50 years that this generation has seen a, an Earth rise.
1: You, you just raised a really fascinating point though, that I had that never considered until you just said it. And that is about how we've seen all these animations we have it's seen, yeah. uh, we've seen amazing things in movies and on TV. Are we going to be able to be impressed with something when we've, even though it's real, when we've basically seen kind of this portrayed with animation, are we going to be hard to impress?
2: I you know what that's always that's always the question that that comes into play right what what's more exciting the the fantasy or the reality of all this and i mean i think it depends on the type of person you are but to me the fact that we're achieving these 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 once impossible ideas i, I mean i find it Fundamentally mind blowing and fundamentally wells up inside of me that by working together as a human race, as all people across the globe, scientists from everywhere, that all working together, we can achieve these incredible things.
1: All they got to do is put William Shatner on board and then everybody will watch. Well, that's you always the thing,
2: too. But you know, to, it's the thing here that one of the things that blew my mind was if you'd have told me that in my lifetime we'd have ever seen an image of the surface of the sun. Yeah, I, I yeah. would never have believed you. And when those came out two to three years ago, or well, maybe geez, maybe five years ago at this point, when those came out, I, I it, it, it rekindled that that passion inside of me a kid. Yeah, yeah, Reading absolutely. Books,
0: thinking about it, yeah,
1: that is Orbachs. Uh, always love yeah. having you on here. Thanks for the time today.
0: No problem. Take care, guys. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Many of the world's leaders are meeting for the G20 meetings in Indonesia this week and it is a uh, it is a fascinating situation right now as to where Canada's place in the world is I don't know that these meetings answer the question of where a country's place in the world is certainly we know about the United States they're a powerhouse and they carry a ton of weight and we know China does and and Russia is being squeezed by all accounts but still a huge player on the world stage where is Canada in this? How much do we matter? Well, the Globe and Mail today had a story that says, um, despite all these things that are going on involving China and Canada right now, there was a hydro employee who was charged with espionage for leaking secrets, apparently, allegedly to China. We had the Huawei thing. We have stories of police stations, Chinese police stations opening in Ontario. We've got reports of China funding candidates running for federal office to try and infiltrate our government. I mean, this is stunning stuff. Uh, According to the Globe and Mail, um, our prime minister is having a hard time getting a meeting or getting a lot of time anyway with China's leader, whether that's because we are insignificant or whether that's because we're on the outs because we've taken positions against them. Well, maybe my next guest can help sort that out. Dr. Jack Cunningham is program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School. He specializes in British foreign policy, Canadian political policy, international history, U.S. foreign policy, and relations with Russia. I mean, he kind of does a little bit of everything. He knows everything about everything, which is why we have him here. Dr. Cunningham, thank you for this today.
3: Thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be with you. Let's go
1: back to that question a moment ago. Is our prime minister having a hard time getting face-to-face time with China's leader because we don't matter or because we're on the outs?
3: I think the unpalatable truth is that we don't count for an awful lot these days. We're not, uh, we're not a major power economically or militarily anymore. And uh, the fact that we're on the outs probably gives the Chinese just uh, an additional reason to not pay a lot of attention to us. Economically, we're uh, we're more dependent upon their market than they are on us for anything. So uh, it's really uh, it's it's unfortunate as as it may it be, may be from our point of view. They're cold,
1: and yet while they don't seem to, we don't seem to matter much to them, we seem to matter enough to them for these things like running candidates and like putting police stations here and all these other things. So clearly, there's something here that matters, just not enough for us to be able to discuss them with them.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, the the uh, the people around Mr. Xi recognize that we are not well disposed to the uh, the Chinese regime. They uh, they'd like to see um, they'd like to see uh, political regimes in more or less every Western country more friendly to uh, to Beijing, and so they're perfectly happy to uh, invest modest amounts in running candidates, in subverting our electoral process, in uh, stealing our secrets. Yes, they're willing to do that and uh, and they can do so at, uh, at relatively low uh, relatively low cost.
1: Yesterday I watched a video clip of a press conference that Prime Minister Trudeau did and he was asked by some reporter, I don't think it was a Canadian reporter, about whether or not China had committed genocide with the Uyghur people and the video that I saw he he was very careful about m- m- part positioning what genocide is and who should be making those kind of determinations. Should we be, if we're not mattering to the Chinese at this point enough to get their attention, should we be bothering about how carefully we want to parse our words or should we just be saying what we want to say?
3: I think we should be saying what we want to say anyway. Uh, trying to uh, ingratiate ourselves just enough with the Chinese that they'll pay attention to us is a bit of a mugs game. We might, as, we might as well uh, have the, uh, the self-respect to uh, say, uh, speak truth to power.
1: Right. And so to try and, uh, I mean, look, it's politics. We understand you don't mm-hmm. want to undermine all your relationships. But if we don't seem to have much of a relationship, is, for lack of a better word, sucking up actually going to help us?
3: No. No, it's not. It buys you nothing if anything it diminishes you in the eyes of the uh, the, the power you're sucking up to you just come across as uh, as weak and needy and reinforce their perception that they can uh, do with you as they will
1: okay so leaving china out of this for a second then cuz we're we're not over at the G20 just to meet with china uh we're also trying to make statements, whether verbal or with our actions, or make connections with other countries. What important work, leaving China out of this for a second, what important work can be done for Canada at the G20?
3: Well, we can try and uh, secure agreement with our uh, our friends and allies about uh, measures to reduce the economic difficulties that the war in Ukraine and the COVID pandemic have brought. The try to address some of these vexing supply chain issues try to uh, see what coordinated economic measures can be taken to avoid slipping into uh, a serious recession all of that we can do of course the uh, the elephant in the room at the G20 is uh, the russian war with ukraine and the uh, the indonesian president uh, tried to uh, paper over this issue he wants a a non non-controversial communique uh, he wants to show that his uh, his country can host a, a G20 that's relatively free of uh, of complications. Uh, we have not, uh, we and a lot of others have not been particularly inclined to play that game, and uh, on that score I think we're right. Uh, M- Minister Jolie's announcement of uh, additional sanctions and of uh, a- an extra half billion in aid to Ukraine is certainly welcome, uh, as far as I can see and uh, at least this time we're offering them uh, surveillance and communications equipment and not just uh, not just balaclavas and parkas so we're offering them stuff they can actually use uh, militarily uh, that's welcome although i note there's no timeline on the delivery of this equipment and that uh, that is some cause for concern
1: uh, before we go, I, I do think it's stunning, and I, I I don't know what to make of it. We've got these reports that Russian missiles have landed in Poland while the g twenty is going on. Yes, i I, I, I can I, is that do you interpret that as intentional to make a point, or, or are these a missile that went awry? And oh, nuts, we've got to now deal with this.
3: It could very well be a missile that went awry. We just don't know enough at this stage to uh, to pronounce definitively what uh, what happened and what it means. But if it was intentional, it's certainly a serious escalation and merits a serious response. No,
1: no kidding. Absolutely, uh, Dr. Jack Cunningham. We always love having you on. Thank you for taking time today.
3: Not at all. Take care.
1: It is a uh, it is a frightening time when when missiles are now. I mean, look, it was frightening when they were going into Ukraine. Now that missiles are going into other countries where people have fled for safety. Wow.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, Today's Talk. 900 CXM1.
1: I'm sure there are students who love taking tests back when they were in school. I was not one of them. I'm sure there are those who do. But they seem to be a fact of life, and many experts would say they're a really useful fact of life. Well, again, that uh, that is up for some discussion because students in the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board based on EQAO tests, those standardized tests across the province, have now fallen below provincial averages in all the categories. The head of the Hamilton-Wentworth Elementary Teachers Union says, well, these test scores are meaningless. Are they meaningless or do they mean something? Dr. Stephen Reed is a former chief assessment officer of EQAO, He's an assistant professor at Queen's University and the faculty of the University of Toronto and teaches math with the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education. He joins us now. Dr. Reed. thank you for the time today.
4: Thanks very much. Good to be here. Is this meaningless? Well, it's, it's interesting, or I guess I could actually say that it's kind of disappointing to see how the EQA results were actually presented. And I would say that the... The results have been manipulated in a way to tell a story that it actually can't be told at this time. Meaning so what? and what I mean by that is that back in 2018-19, um, there were particular assessments that were taking place, the paper and pencil assessments. And when even when we look at grade nine, grade nine was two assessments, one for academic, one for applied. And EQAO uh merged those two together to have a comparison with a brand new assessment uh, for a v stream, the brand new program uh, in mathematics. So we cannot compare, all we do, all we have right now is really a new baseline that we'd be able to judge uh, with respect to uh, where our students fell uh, with respect to uh, uh, their scores. However, there's other parts of EQAO that could have been placed side by side and that's Data that we're missing right now. And so EQAO also has questionnaire data, which is very, very useful because what we know uh, is that EQAO in the past actually looked at their data from grades three and six uh, for mathematics and they were able to identify if students felt good about mathematics, thought they were good at mathematics, also thought that they used the strategies in classroom effectively to answer complicated math questions. Guess what? If they did that well, then years down the line, what we saw in grade nine is that they were still doing well. What I want to know is after the pandemic in 2021, 2022, where did students land with respect to those questionnaire uh, answers? And they're provided in the provincial highlights, but what I don't see is the previous years. What I want to know is at grade six, Did students drop dramatically with respect to how they see themselves as mathematicians, because that could tell us really good information with respect to what we have to do in the future.
1: Okay. But if we have, and you, you gave me a lot there to think about, and a lot of people, you gave us a lot to think about there. math, the math EQAO is supposed to be something that would be a purely objective test. There's no margin for subjectivity in there because it's math does all that ultimately matter if the marks go down and down and down, if we're now below the provincial average, whether the kids like math or don't like math, does this not indicate that something is not going right?
4: Oh, well, we have, uh, we have a lot of research that's connected to mathematics over the years and we saw math spending downwards. So do we have challenges in mathematics? Absolutely. We do. Uh, however, our 2021, 2022 isn't necessarily telling us that based on uh, previous 2018, 19 and before that they've actually gone down. Now, what we also have is a brand new curriculum. And that's important because we had new strands, we had financial literacy, we had coding. We also have expectations that have moved. So all of a sudden expectations like working with integers that were in grade seven have also now moved to grade six. Now, when Lecce moved forward with a new curriculum, he identified that we're gonna move forward with a new curriculum that's gonna go back to the basics. And when I was there at EQO, we came out with information that said, well, actually that's wrong. Students across Ontario actually know their basic facts. They know their knowledge and understanding where they're struggling is with thinking. They're having difficulty with some of those critical thinking questions. So that's that's good information. However, now we have a brand new uh, curriculum that was provided in 2020 with no implementation time. When a curriculum is provided in Ontario previously and around the world, usually it does not come out in June, which say released it in June, June 23rd, and said in September you have to move forward with a new curriculum. Usually there's a year for teachers to be able to work with the, the, the current curriculum then look at the new curriculum and say, oh, what am I gonna have to do differently? What am I gonna have to change? I have these new strands. I'm gonna need some professional learning for that. Where are some, some resources that I can engage with? And that's when boards of education and faculty of education, I'd be doing the same thing. I'd be looking for those same resources, creating those resources, working with my students, getting them ready for the new curriculum. There was nothing. There was a few weeks over the pandemic when teachers were just trying to get to the end of the school year, and here's a brand new curriculum. So for me, there is almost, uh, if you look at implementation, not only was it implemented poorly, it was almost implemented as if to fail. Uh, same thing happened a year later in 2021 for the grade nine curriculum. Here it is in June. You have to, you have to implement it. And it wasn't even just a brand new curriculum. It was hmm. pulling all students together, grade nine into the same classroom and moving forward. So for me, if there was any decline, there's a decline. From the pandemic, we've seen that in other areas of the world, England, New York, where they have assessments that they can actually tell because they have the same assessments. Um, and, and so we see that. We know that. We know that students will yep. be a learning gap. And who is going to have that learning gap? The learning gap is going to be for students who are marginalized, racialized, or Black, Indigenous. Uh, racialized or students with low socioeconomic status we we have i have to jump in
1: i have to jump in unfortunately we have to run but i i sincerely appreciate the time and the insight today Uh, dr stephen Reed, former chief assessment officer of eqao thanks for the thoughts today so much he is the professor of food distribution and policy the director of the agri foods analytics lab at dalhousie university he's known as the food professor dr sylvain charlebois how are you today very good,
5: very good. How are you,
1: Scott? I'm good. The price we're talking about—the price of lettuce—which I mean, yep. Sylvan—I can't imagine a less sexy food, honestly. And yet, we're talking about the price of lettuce skyrocketing for a number of reasons. There's been a virus in California that has wiped out a huge amount of the crop, and just supply chain, and just inflation. So here's the question: Do people truly care? Of all the foods that are out there, do people truly care if they can't get their lettuce?
5: Apparently. Yeah. A lot of people are talking about it. Honestly, I, I don't know what the point is. I mean, something happened in California. The weather was dry. A virus actually ruined crops over there. Uh, less is being exported. We can't buy uh, California lettuce, uh, iceberg and romaine. Things are going to get back to normal in December. What's the big deal, really? And But people are concerned about their leafy greens. Yeah, if can't make a scene without the green, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I, I sort of, I'm halfway joking because clearly people love salads and people want to eat healthy and these are important things. And I, uh, But I wonder if even more than the not getting the lettuce, I wonder if the fact that when they go to the grocery store, and they either don't see it where they've always seen it, or if they see a price that's three times more, I wonder if they're really upset about the lettuce or just the idea that something is going wrong, that we can't get what we've always got.
5: I think it's more the latter. Uh, I, I agree with you, Scott, because uh, I mean, you, you got substitutes, plenty of substitutes. What about kale? Uh, no other.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You say kale and I <laughs> well, shiver. Yeah.
5: I guess both you and I are on the same page <laughs> on that one, but I just wanted to be polite here and, and give people hope. <laughs> but there there are se- several uh, products out there. I mean, I, I actually went to uh, to three or four uh, grocery stores this afternoon just to look around, and obviously uh, there's no lettuce around, uh, and, and price tags were were criminal. Really, eight nine eight fifty nine dollars for three heads of, wow. of romaine—that's very very expensive. So nobody should actually be buying. Uh, paying that much for, for lettuce. Uh, but there are substitutes out there if you look around, so you don't despair. And like I said, Arizona and Mexico will pick up the pace in December, so we should be fine for the holidays.
1: Do you know if the prices that are that high, are they the result of the sellers, of the growers, jacking up their price, or is that rarity at the supermarkets, therefore they can charge higher because of supply and demand?
5: Well, retailers can suppress demand. Uh, basically they have less inventory so they can suppress demand by jacking up prices. So I, I get that. And frankly, margins are pretty high in produce. The problem is that you do have a lot of waste. And so uh, that's why margins are quite high in, in produce. The, the other thing that we should keep in mind is that, uh, well, like I said, I mean, uh, we're, we're this is going to be temporary. We shouldn't actually panic about, uh, about what's happening with, with lettuce. And, uh, and also, you have uh, different options. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's problematic, and California is drying up. It's only going to get worse. We're going to see more of these things. Uh, December tends to be a good month for recalls, by the way, so that's another danger zone that we're, we're facing right now. But overall... I mean, the Canadian dollar at $0.75, cents, which is really good. And so we are expecting prices to stabilize in December for
1: the holidays. Is this one of those moments when if you were someone who is interested in getting into food... That this is one of those times you look and go, you know, here's a market for a giant greenhouse somewhere that can supply some of the Canadian market with this. So we don't have to rely on places in the States that, I mean, we can control this if we were to do it indoors in a giant greenhouse. Or is that so costly that you would say it doesn't make any sense?
5: Well, this is what's happening with uh, with California and trades. California are starting to see trades very differently now. I'll give you one example. Uh, this year, Driscoll's, uh, the, the, the largest uh, produce uh, manufacturer in, in, the, in, in the world, really, decided to license Canadian farmers in both British Columbia and Quebec to grow their strawberries in Canada where there's water. So they gave farmers all the traits, all the genetics, uh, and all they need to do is to grow the stuff, uh, in greenhouses and they can actually label them as Driscoll's and I think that that may happen to, to lettuce as well given what's going on right now my guess is that they may actually start licensing folks so if you're looking at a greenhouse in Canada the greenhouse itself is pretty expensive I mean growing stuff in a greenhouse is capital intensive but if you're given all the genetics all the research which is worth millions of dollars then you got yourself a nice business case.
1: Well, it's a good thing that you wrote your book about poutine, because there's no greenery or lettuce in poutine, and so we're, we're safe. <laughs> if you only eat poutine, Sylvain has a great book, Poutine Nation, out. Uh, you can go read that one. You can solve the problem of having to worry about vegetables and greens and just eat poutine. It'll fill you up.
5: And by the way, Scott, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, Poutine Nation was nominated for Taste Canada Award. Of course it for was. Best, for best uh, book narrative, yeah.
1: I'm not surprised I, at all. It's, I uh, didn't
5: win because the book that won was a masterpiece, really. Uh, but I actually was nominated, which
1: I thought was nice. Absolutely, and it's not surprising to me at all. If you write like you talk, uh, I'm not surprised one little bit. Uh, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this.
0: All right, take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: We have known for months now, maybe more than months, maybe over a year, I guess at this point that first Ontario center was, is going to be renovated. It is going to be fixed up. Um, million, tens of millions of dollars spent to revitalize the old arena. It's an old arena by everyone's standards now. And that this was going to be happening sometime reasonably soon. However, the announcement on Friday, or at least the, the learning on Friday, maybe that's the better word, by some of the people who run teams in that arena that they were going to be not able to play there for two years or the better part of two years has created a bit of a situation. They have expressed that they are surprised by this and they're upset by this. The folks who run HUPEG, Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group, um, say, well, you knew that this was going to be happening to some point. I want to bring in both sides today. We're going to start with uh, P.J. Mercanti. He is the man behind, he runs, he's he's the president. He probably doesn't run. He's the president of Hupeg. He is the guy who is behind the group that will be renovating this. Uh, he joins us now. P.J., thank you for the time today. really appreciate no pr- it. No problem. Thank you, Scott. So uh, let's start just with the very beginning part. You uh, and Hugh Pegg had planned to do this upgrade to the arena. Then all of a sudden, Tim Laiwiki and his group, which is a big American, uh, he was with Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, but he's a big American company now that does these things. You partnered. That increased the scale of what was going to be happening, as I understand, at the arena. How did that change plans for what was going to happen and what construction was going to look like and everything else.
6: So so now with the increase in the renovation budget, the complication of the renovation has obviously increased. And, you know, we had a meeting a few uh, weeks ago with our architects and construction partners around the possibility of still keeping a, a hopeful, staggered renovation, but it wasn't recommended for, you know, logistical, fiscal reasons. And so, you know, when we learned of this, we shared it. But I also want to note, I think it's important to note, uh, that over the past five six months, I was informed of conversations that had taken place uh, between members of our Hupeg team and members of the Bulldogs, uh, as well as some of our other new partners with you know with the Bulldogs about the general construction timelines. And I even believe, Scott, there was a spec article that you had prepared back in July that referenced how Jasper acknowledged that the likelihood. Um, of the, uh, teams needing to relocate for the 23-24 uh, season would happen once construction began. So I was relying on those, uh, communications as being the means in which some of the teams had learned about this. But I'm prepared to acknowledge, Scott, that we should have done a better job, uh, you know, in communicating this. To the teams um, and in maintaining more frequent communications with them in a more formal way and and so moving forward we're committed to engaging with those more frequent touch points and within the next couple of days we're going to be in touch with all the all of the teams to make sure that there is a regular cadence of meetings and updates so that way everybody's on the same page with up-to-date information and details where we can better understand the needs of the team support Um, you know relocation efforts because we ultimately know that you know this will be a bit disruptive Um, and I've reached out to Mr. Andlauer personally inviting a follow-up conversation be it on the phone or in person and I'm I'm hopeful that a positive dialogue can be re-engaged you know we've got a long-hand long-standing history with the Bulldogs with their foundation I've got nothing but respect for Mr. Andlauer for the team and you know we've supported one each other's events over the years when we when Carmen hosted the Wayne Gretzky uh, event that you were at um, back in 2017 the Bulldogs Foundation was one of the evening's beneficiaries so we're hopeful we'll be able to get things back on track or back on track and look forward to the future because we do have that strong history with them and there are exciting things to look forward to with this renovation, Scott.
1: You mentioned, I just want to mention, you mentioned Jasper. Uh, that's Jasper Kajaski, who's a partner with Hugh Pegg, who's the point man, I guess is the right word, for this project right now. Were you surprised, though, BJ, when when you heard that the Michael Anlauer, Mike Morreale from Canadian Elite Basketball League and the owner of the Toronto Rock, when you heard that they were surprised with the news, were you surprised that they were surprised?
6: A, a A little bit but i I can understand where they're coming from however, uh you know we do know that the rock you know with the budget increase uh they said it didn't come as a surprise um you know and and the complication of the increased uh budget you know ultimately impacts that um but you know we're we're looking forward to the future, you know my father. Uh, had a line that said it's not how you start the race that counts, it's how you finish it. So, we're hoping that we can get things back on track with the team, uh, with all the teams and, and look to the future because, you know, this deal and this renovation is great for Hamiltonians and for all of the, all of the tenants. You know, the deal is going to save Hamilton taxpayers $155 million over 30 years. The scale of the renovation is going to increase to a minimum of 80 million and could be as high as 150 to 200 million. And we've always acknowledged that there would be some disruption. Um, And, you know, our our partners at the Oakview Group, they're committed to doing a world-class renovation with us. You know, they've done great things. The Climate Pledge Arena uh, in... Uh, Seattle, the UBS Arena in New York, the Moody Center in Austin, Texas. These are world-class renovation projects. And and so we're excited to to put Hamilton on the global scale. We're excited to have discussions with all of the tenants about our future partnerships in a renovated arena. And we know that Hupeg, you know, with the city, we're going to be embarking on a downtown district visioning exercise where we're going to be welcoming community engagement and feedback about... What does the renovated uh, uh, arena and district look like? Uh, you know, we, we're going to be launching a new Hupeg website that's going to be a mechanism for which feedback could be provided to us, but we're ready to double down on our communication efforts with the teams, uh, with all stakeholders, and, and with the public at large, so that that way everybody can have uh, their voice shared, and we're going to be all ears as it relates to, uh, to, to all this stuff.
1: One other concern that was raised in the last day or so about this was about the timing. That you know, construction projects, unfortunately, we know, don't always get done in the time they are supposed to get done. Is 20 months a reasonable time frame for this, or is that with built-in cushion, or is that a tight time frame that this probably will be going longer than that?
6: Well, we, we feel comfortable. But those are the timelines that uh, that we've been shared by the architects and construction partners and obviously oakview group has a track record now with many renovated and completed uh, arena projects so we're confident that the timing estimates they've provided to us are going to be accurate and you know we know that um that there's going to be a bit of a runway obviously before construction begins so we'll be able to get all of our ducks in a row all of the permits in place. But I just want to emphasize you know, we want to apologize to the teams who are impacted, to their fans, to the community. You know, this is a big project with a lot of moving parts. So some disruption was inevitable, but we're excited about what the project's going to do to reinvigorate the downtown core, to bring renewed energy and excitement into Hamilton, Uh, and so we're looking forward to the future, and we're going to do everything we can to make this project something everybody can be proud of, including all of our tenants, including the Bulldogs, the Rock, and the Honey Badgers.
1: That is P.J. Mercanti. He is CEO of Carmen's Group and he is president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. I very much appreciate you coming on and talking about this, P.J. Thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thank you, Scott.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll
7: delve into the issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's talk. 900 CHML.
1: Just last segment, you heard P.J. Mercanti, who's the chair, the president of the Hamilton Urban Precinct Entertainment Group. That's the group that's going to be rebuilding First Ontario Centre, you heard him explaining what was going on from his perspective with this situation that has arisen this week. Uh, Essentially, what happened was the three main sports tenants of the arena on Friday learned that they were going to be out of the arena for two, almost two full years, up to two full years while construction, two full seasons while construction was going on. Uh, Mike Morielli, who's the president of the Canadian, or the commissioner of the Canadian Elite Basketball League, he said he was angry. Um, The owner, Jamie Dawick, of the Toronto Rock, says kind of it sucked for him because he's just trying to get sorted out here in Hamilton. And my next guest was also displeased with how things played out. His name is Mike Landlauer. He is the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs, who joins us now. Mr. Landlauer, thank you for this today. Hey, good evening, Scott. So... All along, we've known that the arena renovation was going to be happening and that it was going to be a substantial renovation and that it was going to take some time. What, what had been your expectation of what was going to happen to the Bulldogs? Were you not thinking that you would have to leave at all or what, what was your belief about what would happen during that renovation?
8: Yeah, I mean, this is is a bit of a chronology on it. Actually, I never really knew what was going to happen. After January 2020, when when Council rejected the idea of of an arena at Lime Ridge Mall, um, they quickly went out and and had a motion to outsource um, their hospitality and entertainment venues, uh, which I believe was a great idea. At the time, uh, and still believe that um, PJ and his group, Hugh Peg, uh, I don't know how big his group is, um, but uh, um, um, was awarded uh, the uh, that um, um, that this outsourcing initiative, and um, and it was supposed to have happened imminently, uh, like i.e. 2021. Uh, early 2021, I remember discussing with, with PJ in the summer of 2020 when he was awarded, awarded the uh, this, and then working towards a master agreement that they would be uh, uh, getting this done. At that time, we discussed, you know, and in, in, in conjunction with the architects, um, uh, you know, um, who had who had ironically had had done the Madison Square Garden. And uh, I said, you know, this is what we we were looking at doing. Uh, we traded uh, wish lists, et cetera. And uh, at the end of the day, it was uh, um, assumed that we would take an approach that, that like they did with Madison Square Garden, where you would your schedule would be affected either at the beginning or at the end of the season uh, and, uh, you know, um, but i've uh, certainly not not impact uh us to the st- uh, to the tune of being out for two years uh that was never never and um, never you know contemplated uh having said that um communications kind of slowed down uh towards the uh, uh mid of 2021 and then i kinda didn't hear much of anything uh, ask for updates once in a while, and I'd get a I'd get a uh, an update, um, um, but more vague. I think I think the intention was to work together as partners, as financial partners initially, and and I think that I, I wasn't ready to do that because frankly I wasn't sure what you know what the city wanted, what HUPEG's motivations were. That I think they were talking about getting money from Commonwealth Games, et cetera. So for me, I just thought I'll be. I'll be a good tenant like I have been since two thousand and three and um and deal with it when it comes. Um interesting enough, I did I did try to reach out to PJ uh to to try to get an update and then finally we, we had the, the meeting on Friday and uh um because we had to get dates in for next year, um and uh lo and behold Uh, the bombshell um, through a zoom call and then uh, subsequently that evening um, which i thought was going to happen early this uh this week um got the got the got the notice but i definitely not expecting a two-year layoff and having uh, i mean the impact that it has on so many stakeholders in the city is
1: this a, um, PJ was just on before you, and he says, you know, we're going to do a better job at communication. Is, is this, if you were going to come back after those two years, if the Honey Badgers are going to come back, if the Rock come back, presumably this has to be a salvageable relationship with Hupeg. Is this?
8: Well, it's, you see, I, I mean, it's the city that outsources to Hupeg. Um, at the end of the day, the city, the city has to have the well-being of many of the stakeholders in the city. So it's not just about, you know, uh, the, the teams themselves, it's about the fans. Uh, it's about, uh, uh, it's about the, the, you know, the venue, uh, the people that are employed, uh, the restaurants, uh, you know, we, you know, we're out there 40 dates a year, um, in the, in the wintertime, it's, you know, uh you know, uh, you know, the visiting team, uh, stays at hotels. Uh, there's, um, uh you know restaurants and other other areas there's a, there's, there's an economic benefit for for, uh, for for having concerts and and having sports teams play uh, at first Ontario center and and uh, so I, I think the city should be made aware of what's going on it, it seems to me that the city was unaware uh, I think you had councilor farr in yesterday and and uh, uh, he he was not made aware until until the same time i was made aware uh so i think i think the city ha- has to take a bit of the responsibility in in making sure that that communi- communication at hupeg is, is is consistent between the, and they may they may raise a red flag and say well hold on this this might affect us more than you think you know it's not just a matter of uh you know uh so uh, you know i I guess that's my thoughts. Uh, well, let me, let me um, jump in, because we're really
1: tight on time here, and I, I hate to yeah. do this, but when you, when you look to put your team somewhere else, and we literally have 30 seconds, when you look to put your team somewhere else for the next two years, do you absorb all the costs, or does the city or someone help cover some of those costs since you're being kicked out of your arena?
8: Uh, right now, I don't e- uh, Scott, I don't even have yes pj's has called apologizing uh, and and please get this get together of course i 'll call him back uh, but i haven 't heard anything about any of the sort and even if there's uh, you know if, if there 's going to be an ice plant in the play in the, in the, in the new renovation there's going to be strictly an entertainment venue I, there, there's nothing that I have, and that 's my point is that uh, here 's your letter uh, sorry about that, and uh, we we'll, let 's talk about it now about the future. I'm saying, well, you, you should be putting the horse in front of the cart uh, in this case, and and, and and the city should be made aware exactly of that because those those are those are you know how many bulldogs you know uh, and um, the rock and the tie cats and the honey badgers are all part of this community. They they they, they um, So for me, that's uh, uh, no. They have. I haven't, to answer your question, I haven't heard boo from from the stand from going forward. No, Michael Landlauer, owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs.
1: Really appreciate you jumping in today and taking for a few minutes. Thank you for this. All
8: right. Thanks, Scott. You're
0: listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: You, you know that Canada is a bilingual country, of course. That's not news to anybody who's listening. Question is, what should that mean, especially when it comes to hiring people for public sector jobs? If you, should every job that the public, that the federal public sector holds, should they all be bilingual? Well, no one is actually suggesting that, but the federal government is proposing through a new bill that more federal public sector jobs be given, awarded, whatever, to those who are bilingual, that that is a requirement of the position. Some will say, and understandably, some will say, well, yeah, sure, we're a bilingual country, why wouldn't you? Others will say, well, wait a second, certain people in this country who grew up in parts of the country where there is basically no French around haven't been exposed to that, don't have that ability. You have lopped off a huge chunk of the country from even being eligible for these jobs. It is a it is an interesting discussion to have. Jamie Sarkonik wrote about this in the National Post today. She joins us now. Jamie, thanks for doing this. Okay. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes here because this really is um, one of those things that on its face sounds like it could be, hey, that's fine. Why wouldn't we do this? But then you just start to chip away at the surface just a little bit and you start to realize some of the challenges and problems you could have here.
9: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because as you said, like we've always had um, the right to speak in English and French and expect government to be able to handle us choosing to speak in French or English. Um, but what they're proposing is to impose a bunch of French language accommodation requirements onto the federally regu- regulated private sector. So that's um, those are things like banks, postal, interprovincial rail and pipelines, um, stuff like that. Um, they want people to be able to choose to work in... French or English, and have employers be able to accommodate that um, in any French-speaking region, any strongly Francophone area outside of Quebec, um, which they haven't actually defined what those regions are, but they've, they've said that they're going to define that later um, with, with a regulation. But yeah, they're sort of trying to expand those bilinguality uh, requirements onto federally regulated private sector.
1: I don't mean to be a cynical jerk about this, but when you say that you should be able to be accommodated regardless of where you are, if you're an Anglophone in Quebec, are you entitled to be serviced in English if you choose that in all parts of the province?
9: Um, no, they're not going to make it go both ways in Quebec. So they, the minister's office did confirm to Global News last week that this bill doesn't really guarantee any Anglophone protections,
1: so uh, no. So, all right, uh, and again, I don't want to go too far down that road because we, we kind of get that, uh, that. That's been a bone of contention for a long time, but this is, to me, the question is not so much about, you know, is there a Francophone population outside Winnipeg or in Manitoba somewhere or wherever. We know there are populations around. It's a question of if I grew up in rural Saskatchewan where I've had no exposure it sounds like unless I go way out of my way to try and learn French at a conversational level, I'm going to be excluded from an awful lot of jobs.
9: Yeah, pretty much. And 40% of public sector federal jobs are already bilingual, or already require you to be bilingual. And so now they're, ex- they're looking to expand that into even the private sector. So yeah, I mean, people are especially in the prairies and in the west uh, outside of a few specific regions you're really at a disadvantage Um, if you're just a rural person for example growing up and, and you didn't be you weren't able to get into uh french school as a kid because of whatever reason you're it's it's pretty hard to learn a language uh to get eligible for this outside of that. So.
1: Sure, and and there are people like I don't want to suggest otherwise. There are people who could go and learn a language that 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 is absolutely doable, but it it would seem to be a massive advantage for those who grow up in areas where bilingualism is naturally part of the everyday occurrence.
9: Yeah, and it, it's really um I mean, that's that's really a systemic issue. I mean, there's a that that really biases certain jobs in favor of people from certain regions. and it it really does exclude areas that don't have very great French education.
1: One of the things that you wrote about here that i I want you to explain because i'm I, I'm not sure I even understand having read through it a couple times because I, it seems remarkable, if it's true, that the Supreme Court would now, Supreme Court justices would now, have to be able to be fluent so that they could hear a case entirely in French. Am I reading that right?
9: Um, that's correct. So right now under the Liberals, that's, that's already a requirement under the current government's appointment process. So they've, they've said that we want judges or justices rather to be functionally bilingual to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Um, this would just entrench that in the legislation. So they're, they're already doing this uh, under the Liberals, but this would put it directly into the law. Um, and, it, yeah, right now the way it works is you can have interpreters work with judges to get the message across. And, I mean, it's, it's worked perfectly fine for uh, Canada up until this point. So um, by changing it to really exclude anyone who's not bilingual, it's... Um, Really cutting off a lot of judges, a very a lot of quality jurists from ever sitting on the bench.
1: So. Well, sure it is, sure it is, and and I don't understand. I guess I don't understand why having an interpreter would be a problem, especially if you go to if you have politicians who go to the United Nations, for example. There are lots of politicians who from other countries who, for example, would speak English, and yet they still wear the headsets with a translator to make sure that they are getting the nuance of what they're trying to get or to get the language. And, and no one has said, well, the United Nations can't possibly function because everybody doesn't speak every single language.
7: The, oh, the, absolutely. The, the
1: interpreter works. I, I, don't, I, I, I wouldn't understand why this would be a huge problem. I'd like the judges to speak French, but if you want to speak in your first language so you're sure to get all the details, what would be the problem with that?
9: Um, th- there shouldn't be a problem with that, really. It hasn't been. And um, what, what should really matter with that is with the Supreme Court especially, should be the the quality of jurists, their ability to reason. And and you can reason through um, legal situations in a a different language and have it interpreted to you and and be perfectly fine. So, no, it really, like, to me, I mean, that looks like a systemic way to to put anyone who's not from a bilingual region at a disadvantage because, um, I mean, most law schools in Canada are English only. Mm. So... Most people are getting their legal education in in English, and they shouldn't be excluded from these positions just for that. Jimmy, I mean, if you look at a map, the main bilingual regions are uh, eastern Canada. Most of most bilinguals are in Quebec, um, some in New Brunswick, and then and then you have the the few that are scattered across the rest of the country. So, lots of regions are English only. Um, we should have people be able to sit on the Supreme Court no matter what their background.
1: Let me throw one more thing at you. We only have a few seconds here, but you write this. It's yet another new law that expands the federal government's power over cultural policy. How would it it expand its reach over cultural policy?
9: Yeah, I mean, through various granting programs um, and online regulations that are, or online laws that are coming through the House of Commons right now, the government's really been looking to Uh, get a stronger hand over cultural policy, let's say. Um, So when it comes to news coverage or um, online content, the government, like the federal government, is really looking to regulate what's going on with that. So languages are another part of culture that they're really trying to delve into instead of taking a hands-off approach, which I think is more sensible.
1: So, so if more and more people from certain areas where bilingualism is already a thing, if more and more people find their way into the workforce, they will naturally have more control and more push over cultural issues.
9: Um, yeah, that, that, that's what follows from all this. Really, um, there are a limited number of spots and they're very biased towards, or they're very favorable let's say for people from bilingual regions which tend to be from um, the east
1: really so Jamie Sarkonic it's a, it's a terrific piece a people should read it in the national post Trudeau Liberals enshrining even more privileges for bilingual workers uh, Jamie thanks for the time today I really appreciate you doing this yeah thank you bound. some people who are homeward bound are homeward bound because they've suddenly got the flu It is, um, whether you're in a railway station or on your way to your destination, whatever the lyrics, the flu in Canada is everywhere apparently now. I mean, that's a bit of an overstatement. But uh, the latest numbers show that influenza is now, it's now past the seasonal threshold and is, according to the experts, we are in the start of an epidemic. But of course we are. Why why wouldn't we have something else to deal with, right? We've got, we made it through COVID. Why wouldn't we have something else to deal with? Well, yes, we are. We are now into some big numbers for the flu apparently and potentially growing, which is raising all kinds of questions. The decision, the discussion about mask mandates or what to do or whether to get shots or I know someone who might know something about this. Let's bring in Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. She's a family doctor, a vaccine researcher, founder of Prime Health Research, and she's a medical columnist. She joins us now. Doctor, thank you for this today.
7: Many thanks for having me and a warm good afternoon to you. Thank
1: you so much. So we are now in a flu epidemic. Here's the thing about this that I was wondering about yesterday. We were talking a little bit about this on this topic for almost two years, maybe two full years here in Canada we had essentially zero cases of the flu. I mean, I know there were a few, but with a, the statistics showed it was almost a complete non-factor. What has changed?
7: That's absolutely true. Uh, so how, how do you even start this list? All the precautions that societies were doing, right? We were masking. We were physically distancing. We were, we were so cautious about so many things. We had limits on gatherings. All of that has changed now. So, you know, naturally we're going to see not just a tiny increase in flu cases, but a massive increase. And that's what we've seen. You could almost count them on one hand two years ago, and now there is, as you've mentioned, this is Public Health Agency of Canada, not just Iris Scorpical, saying it, we are in the midst of an epidemic. And what determines that? Like, How do they even call it? It's not just the number of cases, it's the test positivity. So take a look, two weeks ago, it was 6.3%. In other words, just over one in 20 tests that were done were positive for influenza. Now it's one in more than one in 10. And that's what determines it. As soon as it's more than one in 20, it's called an epidemic. So it's an epidemic. That's what we've got on our hands. And that's why we have to have all the precautions in place. I've got to put in a plug for vaccination. Guess what the number one cause? The number one cause of influenza, as we speak, is H3N2. And that particular variety of influenza is, in fact, in the flu shot. So this year's Mm. flu shot should prove pretty good.
1: The the difficulty with this, I mean, there's lots of difficulties. The difficulty with this is that We were able to so effectively not have the flu with all the things you just described, but we also hated that life. We, most of us hated social distancing, hated being in our basement all the time, hated wearing a mask, hated having to do all those things. We couldn't wait to stop doing those things. So it seems like it becomes the trade-off that if you're going to say, I don't want to have to live that life, you're going to have to accept to some degree that you're going to have flu around.
7: No, you're you're totally nailing it. There's no question that those activities cause serious harms, and some of which are still ongoing right now. But the things that we can do, the low-lying fruit, a mask is low-lying fruit. They've looked at, does a mask, even when it's in a school setting to young children, cause harm? And the answer is, no, it does not. Far greater harm is caused when we do not mask. So especially now that the hospitals, the pediatric hospitals are so overwhelmed. And let's talk about that. We're talking 140% occupancy. We're talking about beds that they don't have that they're now trying to have to create. You take a look at the emergency waiting, waiting times for kids. We're talking, what, 12, 14 hours? And that's going to serve as a serious you know, disincentive for people to take their kids who really need to get into hospital. So it's not just about us, although masks do protect us, it's also about protecting herons from taking it home to their children. And that's, you know, it's it's interesting. If you take a look at the so-called triple denic. We've got RSB, we've got influenza, we've got COVID-19, three things. And the thing about, and, and they all affect the same groups of people, right? So it's elders and the very young who are most at risk, but. The elders are basically really well vaccinated at this point. Well over four out of five are totally vaccinated. And they're also extra cautious with masks. But when you look at kids, especially very young kids, they don't have a vaccine against RSV. And, you know, 97 percent, this is an interesting factoid to take home to dinner. 97 percent of kids are going to have RSV before they're two years old. Hmm. It's a universal disease, and one in fifty to one in a hundred wind up in hospital from it. So what we've got now is a tsunami of kids getting RSV who didn't have it before. They're all getting it simultaneously. And that's what's overwhelming the hospitals. That's what's causing about half of the hospitalizations for kids. It's RSV, the other half is influenza. We've got a vaccine and it's not being used in kids. Less than 1% have been vaccinated against the flu.
1: Doctor, when when we went through those last two years with essentially, as I say, zero cases. And, and again, I, so people don't think we're making this up. I mean, there were a few, but it was a handful. It was a, it was a shockingly low number of cases of the flu. When we went through two years of that and people then didn't get the flu, did we hurt our immunity so that now that it's back, we're less able to fight it so it's worse than it would have been normally?
7: Well, this is it. The immune system is as robust as it's ever been. It didn't damage the immune system's response. What happened is that immunity wasn't built against, it's not just influenza, it's against RSV as well. So those two diseases... Children and adults did not have the same exposure to those diseases, so those particular things we do not have as much immunity to. But our immune system is robust as its upper. Now, for people who've had COVID-19, there have been some interesting studies saying that once a person's had COVID-19, it may diminish their immune response. But that's not ready for prime time. And most individuals who have it do not have that problem. The vast majority are going to get over it and do not have that as an issue. You know, so yeah, so that's what we're seeing now. Exactly what I said for RSV is happening for influenza. And it's it's not that it's any more virulent, it's more that it's just the sheer number of people who are getting it. And that small number percentage who wind up in hospital that's what's overwhelming our hospitals. So the vast majority of kids who get RSV are gonna get over it, 49 out of 50, 99 out of 100, something in that realm. But the fact is when you've got so many people getting the disease at once, that's what can overwhelm the hospital mm-hmm. system. And that's why masks and masking is so important.
1: Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, I uh, love having you on. Thanks for taking some time to talk about this today.
7: Yeah, many thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
7: You've been hearing all day on the station
1: today about the snow that may be coming to Hamilton sometime this evening. Well, I during the break, I was just flipping around and noticed the AccuWeather forecast for Buffalo. Have you heard what Buffalo is waiting on? I mean, it's Buffalo, so you can imagine they are expecting that between thursday and saturday morning they could have 6 feet of snow lake effects though if you're going to buffalo you might want to not go to buffalo 6 feet of snow they're talking that that almost sounds impossible but it's lake effect it's And it's Buffalo. Why wouldn't you have that amount of snow? What is this? 2006 in Hamilton? You remember when, or it was 2006, 2007, like where it's just, I couldn't get out of of
0: the front door of my house because the, uh, the patio head was completely snowed
1: in. There was one year, and I can't remember what year it was, where there were three consecutive giant storms that came in about two days apart. And you would just get the driveway shoveled here and you'd be lying on the couch moaning because, you know, idiot me i hadn't got my snowblower tuned up and it wouldn't start when in the off season and so you know it was um it was not working so it was shovel time and then you just get the thing done and your back is killing you and then they go oh and tomorrow another two feet moving in i guess we're in canada another 0.7 meters does anyone understand i'm still and maybe it's just me being an old guy when it comes to snow, if someone said, we're going to get 0.82 meters of snow, do you know what that is? Or if they said, we're going to get three and a half feet of snow, everybody knows what that is. How is it that we have metric? We've had metric forever and still almost nobody m- talks about their height in metric.
0: Every time I have to fill out a government form, I just look at my driver's license to find, okay, what is the metric measurement of my height?
1: And I don't even care if you are 18 years old, maybe if you're 18. But uh, I mean, you're not an old man, Will, and even young people who have grown up entirely in the metric w- system still know their height. As I'm six foot two, I'm five foot nine. No, if someone came up to me and I said, if I was talking to them over the phone and couldn't see them, and I said, "How tall are you?" and they said, "I'm one point seven meters." I, <laughs> Wait, is that tall or is that not tall? I don't, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm 4.2 meters. Wait, no, no, no. That's not right. Um, yeah, it, it, it's weird that in our metric world that we still measure height of things in feet. So Buffalo, six feet of snow potentially this weekend. Travel, I mean, I I don't know if you have any reason to be in Buffalo, but um, you may want to find a different reason. Uh, Speaking of big numbers, big vertical numbers, let me just say before we wrap up today, because there's only nine minutes left for you to vote in the Twitter poll today. There is a time frame on this one. We asked, the Ontario Liberals are calling for universal masking in schools and on transit. Do you support that idea? We gave you four options. Yes, but only for transit. Yes, but only for schools yes to both or no to both two things first of all the number of people who have cast votes on this is unbelievable it's mind blowing we usually you know we do these Rick Zamprin starts these polls every morning at 5:30 on good morning good morning hamilton and it's it's usually hundreds of people cast votes over the course of a day Well, with minutes left, we have passed the 13,000 vote mark today. There is immense passion, obviously, about this particular topic, about bringing forward a mask mandate again. There is immense passion about this. And just before I tell you what the numbers are, let me say this. I am kind of surprised at how passionate there is about this because there was a poll done, a real official polling house, you know, professional poll done in Ontario a few days ago that asked people, are you in favor of a mask mandate? And I think it was either 53 or 57% of people said, yes, I'm in favor of a mask mandate. Now, I don't know who they asked. And this poll not scientific because we're not doing it in a scientific way per se, it's an open poll. Still 13,156 votes. You like to think you have a reasonable number of people. That one was slightly over 50%. The official, the, the professional one, slightly over 50% yes, bring back a mask mandate. I found that weird though, as we talked about yesterday, because if that many people are in favor of a mask mandate, Why are they not wearing masks? Why are we not seeing half the people in stores wearing masks? We're seeing like 5% wearing masks. Well, these numbers in ours tend to bear it out. The Ontario Liberals are calling for a universal masking in schools and on transit. Do you support the idea? Yes, but only for transit. 0.9%. Yes, but only for schools. 0.7%. Yes to both. 6.3%. How's your math? You're getting what's coming next. No to both. No, I do not want a mandate for transit, for schools, for anything. No. 92.1% of our 13,000 votes cast. No. Again, take that for what you want to take it. But that is a strong, strong number that says no, do not bring in a mask. You can agree, you can disagree. We love that you cast a vote, though. We love that you participated. We love that you were here today as well. We uh, we always appreciate you spending some time with us here on Hamilton today. Uh, to Will, thank you for keeping us on the air and doing a fantastic job. To Other Will, we have Wills everywhere here. It's like a lawyer's office. We have The Other Will for lining everything up. Uh, fantastic job today as well. To our amazing guests, we appreciate your time and your expertise. And again, to you for listening. Thank you so much for taking time. Back tomorrow at 3 o'clock, but way before then, just hours from now, less than 12 hours from now, Rick Zamperin will be firing up Good Morning Hamilton, 5.30. Get up early, tune in for that. You won't regret it. We'll talk to you soon. Have a great day.
5: And boom goes the dynamite.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.